Welcome to the 213th episode of the 4th and 24 podcast with Patrick Winograd. I'm your host, Randy Winograd. In this edition of the podcast, our topics are a brief overview of Patrick's weekend predictions and our weekly look at Major League Baseball, including a look back at the first half of the Major League Baseball season. Let's jump right in with a look back at Patrick's weekend predictions, which are posted every Thursday on our website, 4thand24.com. We will start in Major League Baseball, where Patrick went 1-3 and three with his weekend predictions. And with a little bit of a twist, we did some tennis predictions, or at least Patrick did, this week. So uh, in men's tennis, in the ATP Tour, Patrick went 1-3 and three with his predictions from Wimbledon action. And in the WTA, Patrick went 2-2 two and two with his women's tennis predictions from Wimbledon, meaning Patrick went 4-8 and eight combined in his weekend predictions. Patrick, your thoughts on those weekend predictions? Well, it's not a great week for me overall, obviously. I tried to, you know, go out and do some new thing with the whole tennis prediction idea. It didn't go as well as I thought, but it was actually a very interesting week in Wimbledon. A lot of experienced players winning games, and or matches, I should say, and a lot of inexperienced players getting the upsets, like Cam Norrie, for example, very comfortable at Wimbledon in his home country. Number 12 seed was a semifinalist last year, and he loses to Christopher Eubanks, who is an analyst for the Tennis Channel as a side gig, not even a full-time player yet. Um, in reality, just graduated from Georgia Tech a few years ago. Uh, first, I will like to say, glad to see Americans doing well in that tournament, and obviously, you know, that's been... The American tennis uh, representation has been a lot limited by the fact that the big three of Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic have just dominated everything anyway. Um, so it's not really Americans alone in terms of what, what countries have been dealing with that, but, you know, it's good to see someone advance very far... On the men's side, uh, from the U.S., obviously Serena Williams held that position down very well, and there are many, many really good women's players right now that are also still uh, American-born on that side currently. But that one was my first loss that I took. Then you have Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, who beat Bodic van de Senskulp. Yes, I can pronounce names. I'm actually okay at that. Um, I did predict that one wrong. I had an upset there. Upset by seeding, not upset by... Uh, Actually, I think betting lines did have Van Essenshulp as the favorite, but he lost that match 6-1-2-6, 6-4-6-3. Um, and then Matteo Berrettini, this is what I was talking about with the uh, experience thing. I picked one ex- inexperienced player to win and one experienced player to win, and it turned out being the opposite. Alex Diemenauer, definitely not uh, a lesser experienced player, but definitely one who, in comparison to Matteo Berrettini, would not be considered experienced uh, despite that, unfortunately, Berrettini did get the win, so for me, that means I take another loss there. Uh, and then, obviously, on the other hand, I picked Nori, who had the more experience, and he, of course, lost. Then you had the match between Hubert Hercoc and Lorenzo Musetti. That one was, I think, pretty even in terms of experience and in terms of seeding 17 seed against the 14 seed here. Um, and that was the one that I picked correctly. Hercoc currently in a match that got suspended with Djokovic, although by the time this comes out, probably that match will have been played or finished, I should say, uh, but not doing too poorly. He's down two sets as of this recording, but he has pushed it to a tie break both times, and Djokovic has just come out in the clutch in those moments, as he seems to always do. In terms of the women's tennis side, I messed up with the experience thing here. I had Victoria Azarenka uh, losing to Daria Kasatkina, but that one did not happen. Uh, Kasatkina with a big rise all the way to 11th, and I don't even think she's won a major or anything like that. Just a few smaller tournaments that she's won and advanced uh, a pretty decent amount in some other major ones as well. Um, but then number 14, Belinda Bencic, defeated Magda Lynette, who was the 23rd seed, a player who had a good run at the U.S. Open, I think three or four years ago, I want to say. 
Um, and then you have Von Drusova, who beat Donna Vekic, who was definitely an experienced player. Did not expect that one with an unseeded player beating the number 20 seed. Very, very surprising. Um, and then Iga Sviatek defeated number 30, Petra Martic. I had that one right. Very hard to pick against Iga, and she wins this one again. The Benchich was the other one I got correct. So overall, 3-5 and five in my first swing at tennis predictions. No pun intended. Not a great week. I don't really care, though. It was a fun week of tennis to watch, although... I will admit these games are on way too early for someone who lives on the West Coast, uh, unfortunately. Probably manageable from the East Coast, but 5 in the morning, just not good enough. Uh, just way too early. But in the MLB, uh, I will say the Braves took 2 of 3 from the Rays. They have not lost a series since they lost their last series in May to the A's, uh, which is very, very surprising, both that A, they haven't lost any of their last 12 series, and B, that that series lost to the A's. And then also... Uh, the Rays, they had lost seven in a row prior to winning on Sunday to to avoid a sweep and avoid eight straight losses. Just crazy to think about when you think about their first half. They no longer have the best record in MLB, and they no longer have anywhere close to the biggest division lead um, in all of baseball. In fact, the Giants are actually farther away from the Dodgers and Diamondbacks in first place than the Orioles are from the Rays in second, which is crazy to say after the start of the season that the Rays had, but recently it's kind of falling apart, and we'll talk a little bit about that later. Uh, then you have the Marlins, who took two of three from the Phillies. Uh, the Orioles swept the Twins. This is funny because I picked the Twins-Orioles last week. I picked the Orioles. They lost to the Twins. This week, I picked the Twins-Orioles. I picked the Twins. They lost to the Orioles. Oops, should have gotten one of those right, but if I had just been more stubborn, I would have gotten one of them right at least, but I didn't. Uh, and then the Brewers took two of three from the Reds. Uh, the Reds doing something they rarely ever do. They got shut out on Sunday. They only needed one run to tie the game or send it to send it in extras, and they actually ended up losing the Sunday game one to nothing. A very very surprising result uh, there in Milwaukee. But the Reds end up taking the series loss because of it, and as a result, I go one and three in MLB predictions and under five hundred for the week. Yeah, and uh, that four and eight record I forgot to mention brings Patrick to a seven hundred fifty two and four hundred ninety seven overall record which is a 60.2 winning percentage. Let's see how Patrick does next week with his weekend predictions, which will be posted, as always, on our website, 4thand24.com, on Thursday. Now let's turn our attention to Major League Baseball with our weekly review, starting, as always, in the American League East, where Patrick already gave you a little foreshadowing of what's going on at the top of the division. No changes yet at the top of the division, although I will say... It feels like it's the first time in a while that every team in this division is within single-digit games of the Rays. It feels like there was a time where they were 10 games ahead of almost everybody in the division, and now nobody is more than nine games behind. Actually, the only division in the entire major leagues that doesn't have a team at least 10 back, and I think if you actually did the full math, I think the Cardinals are the closest last-place team at 11.5, other than the Red Sox, who are only nine games back, but... We do know that this division in the AL East is capable of that because of the fact that all these teams have been pretty much above or at 500 the entire year. Maybe the the Yankees, I don't think the Yankees have actually slipped below 500 at all. Maybe the Blue Jays did for a little bit. Um, the Red Sox have been kind of teetering on that, but pretty much even fourth place in this division has been above 500 every week, at least 90% of the weeks, if not every week. Um, and then last place, the Red Sox, they haven't been struggling at all, uh, but you know, by the standards of this division, technically yes, but in overall, overall in the league, they're not struggling at all. They would be leading multiple divisions right now and would be very close in a few others as well. Uh, but going back to the top, it is the Rays who are the topic of discussion as always, but three and seven in their last 10, a very poor end to the first half for them. 
Uh, they are now even in the loss column with the Orioles, which is something that didn't seem possible a few weeks ago, but it's now already true at the All-Star break. The Braves have blown them out of the water in terms of going for the top record in the league. The Braves now many, many games ahead of them in that chase. Atlanta with a 674 win percent, uh, which the Rays are at 624, so the Rays are actually closer to the Dodgers, for example, than they are to the Rays, even though the Dodgers have obviously not had their perfect first half. So, I mean, or I think I said the Rays are closer to the Rays. The Rays are closer to the Braves, excuse me. Uh, But, you know, it just goes to show you they haven't had their typical first half. But it's very interesting um, to see that the Rays had that amazing start. But they've been under 500 since. I think you can clip it at them having a 29-7 and start. And since then, they are under 500, I believe, is the stat. Um, And just overall... Not really doing many things very well anymore. I mean, there's just not there's just not a lot of things that this ball club is giving you right now that look like the Rays that started off the season. Their pitching has not been as good. Their hitting has not been as good. I think it's really simple and it boils down to those two things. But if you want to go even further, it just feels like the stars that they've had, uh, that, you know, they're not exactly superstars like Freddie Freeman or Mookie Betts. They're not those types of players at all. They're kind of lower tier stars, but... They've kind of gone from stars to just, you know, very above average, but not quite star level players. And that's kind of hurt them a lot. And then the other guys who were playing like all stars that are really more just your typical six or seven man in the lineup have stopped playing like those all stars. And they've started to actually play like six or seven guys in the lineup. And that kind of mixed with the teams that they've been playing and everybody really giving them their best shot at this point because of how good they've been has just completely started to gut them, and all of a sudden, the Orioles are only two games back, so now I move on from the Rays. After winning their last five games heading into the All-Star break, only 6-4 and four in their last 10 after winning five in a row, which is surprising, but still, 54-35, and 35, just two games back of the 58-35 and 35 Rays, as I said, same amount of losses. Then you have the Blue Jays, who are 50-41. and 41. They are seven games back, 6-4 and four in their last 10. The Yankees, who are 49-42, and 42, are eight games back, and then you have the Red Sox at the bottom of the division, who are 48-43 and at nine games back, but they are the hottest team in the division. Best record in their last 10 games in all of the American League at 8-2, and uh, with the five-game winning streak heading into the All-Star break. One of the many teams that probably would tell you we don't want the All-Star break to come. It shouldn't have happened. Uh, But in terms of the wild card, if you want to go there already, you have Toronto tied with Houston for the second and third spot. Uh, The Yankees and Boston both one and two, respectively, games behind uh, those two. And then Baltimore is five games up on those teams to have that overall first spot in the wild card, which actually has now become an important thing because it does mean you host a playoff series. And the winner of that series will play the AL East division winner, it looks like at this point. I mean, I think, I don't think there's, I mean, maybe the Rangers could possibly catch Uh, the AL East winner, but we know that the Central winner is not going to have as good of a record as anybody in the AL East who wins the division because they have a worse record than every team in the AL East. So not really going to happen from that division. Probably going to be the AL East winner. Maybe the Rays, maybe the Yankees, maybe the Orioles, maybe the Blue Jays. Could be any of those four, honestly. Uh, If not, maybe it's the Astros going on a tear or the Rangers kind of going back to their form, but even still it would be hard to overtake that one seed from the Rays or the Orioles at this point. Yeah, well... uh... You've said it all about the American League East. Just a very, very tough division with a lot of competitive teams, all of whom would be leading the American League Central. So let's move to the American League Central. Well, it's finally caught up to the Twins. We've been talking about it for many, many weeks on end, how eventually 
The Twins were going to come up from behind, or sorry, the Guardians were going to come up from behind the Twins and catch up to them in the division. Last year, the Twins had a pretty solid lead in this division, were above 500 late into the year, and choked it at the very end and ended up 79-83, and 83, I think was their final record. They were buyers at the deadline because they had a decent lead, but they knew they wanted to protect it. And then the Guardians somehow just kind of did their thing, started playing better, got a few minor acquisitions that ended up helping them uh, be good enough to overtake the Twins and also got some more production from Andres Jimenez and Jose Ramirez, who had great seasons last year, and Jose Ramirez continues to dominate. That's just what he does, uh, as he is the best third baseman in baseball. That's what he should do. Uh, but look... The Guardians have caught up, and the Twins now, if you look at it, it's crazy how bad the Central has been, because actually, if you look at all of the American League, the bottom five in the standings overall are all American League Central teams, other than the Oakland A's. It literally goes the A's, and then it goes Kansas City, the White Sox, Detroit, the Twins, and then at that list, you technically have the Angels one game above, or one game behind or half game behind the Guardians, who are 45 and 45 heading into the break. But obviously, I'm looking at wild card standings because the Guardians are leading this division despite being at 500 at the break. Honestly, though, six and four in their last 10. They're not playing horrible right now. As I've said, they're still very injured, but they're getting guys back and they're playing just well enough that I don't see any way the Twins actually come back and compete in this division when the Guardians are healthy because right now, it, the Twins just don't have anywhere near the injuries that the Guardians do. Um, despite, to be quite honest, having a few players who are kind of injury-prone. I mean, obviously, we know Carlos Correa was a member of three different teams this offseason as a result of that long-term injury scare that he has uh, on his physical. And Byron Buxton has had to play DH because of the fact that they don't want him playing in the field. So, you know, I I think there are a lot of potential pitfalls with the Twins, whereas the Guardians really feel like they kind of hit rock bottom at the beginning part of the middle of the season, and I don't really see how it gets any worse from there for them. Um, and it just feels like they played better recently with the more players, with the better quality of players, and I think that'll probably continue, and they probably make a few small moves at the deadline to make their team even better and make sure that they can actually win this division. Probably some minor deals for minor prospects, not giving up anything crazy. They've also started to bring up bigger prospects as well. Gavin Williams, one of their top prospects, has come up as a pitcher as well, and Tanner Bybee doing pretty well in the Rookie of the Year standings if Josh Young didn't exist, but unfortunately he does for uh, Bybee there. And then you have the Twins, they're a half game back at 45 and 46. You have the Tigers, they're 39 and 50, five and a half games back. They, at this point, look like a solid middle of the division team when you look at where they are in the standings, but the fact of the matter is, if you look at the record, they're a really bad team. Um, And the fact of the matter is, all the teams in this division are very bad teams, especially the bottom three. The White Sox at 38 and 54 are eight games back, three and ten in their la- three and seven in their last ten. I would say I'm surprised, but as we'll talk about in a little bit, they're actually not even close to the biggest disappointments in um, preseason expectations to current record based on how we're gonna evaluate that. There's actually a contender, a team that could even win the World Series still, that actually is even worse than we thought they would be in terms of that drop off from expectations to actual. Um, actual in-season production. And then, of course, you have the Royals at the bottom of this division at 26 and 65. He just doesn't, you know, the Royals just don't play very good baseball at all. They got the series one over the Dodgers. That was great. But three and seven in the last 10, very, very close to losing that uh, second worst record title to the A's. It'll be interesting to see which of these teams quickly become sellers before the trade deadline. Um, Like you said, there's a lot of fool's gold in this standings. Uh, The White Sox are basically just terrible and they've got some pieces that they should be trading for so we'll 
We might talk about that a little later, but let's move on to the American League West. Well, in the AL West, at first place, you have the Texas Rangers there at 52 and 39. They have been pretty bad recently, though, 3 and 7 in their last 10. There is one team worse in their last 10 in this division, but it's not the A's, which is surprising. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, but the Rangers entering the break 3 and 7 in their last 10. They've lost two in a row, 52 and 39. You know, this is an interesting case. I think this is one of the teams that's going to really benefit from the All Star break um, in the case that. They're going to get these guys that they've stopped being distracted about maybe, you know, you never know with guys who haven't been in the All-Star game much. Obviously, Seager and Simeon are very, very familiar with this because this is not their first time in the game at all uh, and not their first time performing at a high level or being on great teams. But I really do think that, you know, for some of the younger players that were making All-Star pushes, sometimes that pressure starts to weigh on you a little bit. Um, And as the season gets closer to the All-Star break, if you haven't been picked and if you're looking to be there as an injury replacement, which, you know, a guy like Adelise Garcia did get selected to fill that exact same role, and a guy like Leody Tavares was looking for that selection, didn't get it, but I really do think that that can start to weigh on you a little bit, and post-All-Star break, once they've gotten that experience under their belt, they've gotten that little break, I think they can finally, you know, just put everything behind them and be ready to say, okay, get the veterans in there and they'll be ready to say, and Bruce Boshi will be ready to say, all right, guys, this is winning time now. This is no more, there's no more experimenting with lineups. This is, if you're playing well, you're going to play. If you're not playing well, you're not going to play. This is a contending team. We're trying to win a division here. And I think that that'll rein them in. And, you know, as a result, I think they'll get back to their early season form that had them almost at the best record in baseball at some point um, and had them really contending with the Rays and then beating the Rays in that series, actually, while they were searching for best record, for the rights to the best record. Um, And then... You have the Astros. Well, I said it's possible a few weeks ago that maybe the Astros are just not going to make their run like they always do. I mean, it feels like they always have some crazy win streaks in them and they just take over their division, whether it's being down by a game and then making that a six-game lead or something, or whether it's just the game is cl- the lead is close, they're a two-game lead, and it becomes a ten-game lead. They seem to always do that at some point in the middle of the season. It seemed like it wasn't coming this season, and all of a sudden you look up and the Astros are just two games back in their division. Uh, And right now, they beat the Rangers in the last series they played them in. They're a few games away from being the two seed, all the way from being the six seed currently, which is just crazy. And a few weeks ago, they weren't even in the playoffs. Like, if the season had ended that day, multiple days for the last few weeks, this team wouldn't even be a playoff team. And despite that, they're now two games away from being the number two seed in all of the American League, uh, which also goes to show you how bad the Central is, that they can't even prevent a thing like that from happening. But 6-4 and four in their last 10, I think the Astros are going to have a good second half. It'll be a really interesting battle between them and the Rangers uh, to see who can win this division. I do think it's a two-horse race, though. I, I think this is kind of very similar to 2021 and how people thought that the Giants could contend with the Dodgers and— or, sorry, the Padres could contend with the Dodgers and the Giants in that division, and the Padres just fell off. The Mariners didn't have a good first half. The Angels did have a good first half until the last few weeks. I don't see either of those teams contending with the Rangers and the Astros. Um, Astros from experience and Rangers just from being so far ahead and having this big of a head start. But I think between those two, it'll be a really good race. Um, It'll be a really fun one to watch. Probably the closest one uh, over the course of the season. Maybe a little bit like Braves-Mets last year, where you have two really, really good teams. And regardless of who finishes first in the division, both of them could make some noise in the playoffs. Although, obviously, the Mets didn't really make any noise in the playoffs last year after choking that division lead. But then... You have the Mariners, the best record in the last 10 in this division, actually the second best in all of the American League in the last 10, 7-3 heading into the break. 
They're ending it on the right note. They got above 500. They're a third in this division, six games back uh, of the first place Rangers, a few games back of the wildcard spot as well. But, you know, the rain, sorry, the Mariners, they still have some work to do, obviously. A lot of a lot of ground to make up in the standings and also probably some improvements to make to the roster. I don't know what they're going to do with the trade deadline. It'll be an interesting team to monitor in terms of is their approach to get pitching? Is their approach to stay young? Do they not want to trade any more prospects after everything they gave up for Luis Castillo? It's a very interesting uh, thing to ponder when you're talking about the Mariners because they're kind of in that limbo between a contending team that definitely needs to be buyers, but they're definitely not bad enough to be sellers. So it's a very interesting conundrum that they found themselves in. And then finally, at fourth place in this division, you have the LA Angels, who are 1-9 in their last 10 games. They have lost five games in a row heading into the All-Star break. Just a week ago, they were 44-37. and 37. Seven games above 500. If you were seven games above 500, you're three back in this division right now. But instead, and you're only, and you're only one game, you're in the same position as the Yankees in the wild card, who are one game out of a spot. But instead... They're now a game under 500, and they're way out of that race. Obviously, again, it's still too early to be really talking about wild card conversations or anything like that seriously, but the fact of the matter is that's just not the place they should be right now. Um, and you include the Trout injury in there and the Rendon injury for, what, like the third time this season that he's been injured? Otani can't even pitch right now because of a blister. You look at everything, and honestly, all signs are pointing to a Shohei Otani trade. I really feel like that's what we're looking at at this point. I just can't see the Angels thinking in any world that at this point in the season, after all this has happened, they finally put together a great roster. They spent all the money in the offseason. They thought they were being smarter about it. They got better pitching. They got a better lineup. They brought up more prospects. I really don't see a way that they can convince themselves as a front office that they're going to re-sign Otani. Because if he wants to win, and he's made it very clear that winning is a big part of his priorities— if he wants to win, he's not going to stay with the Angels because they have a track record of losing. They don't have a winning season since they've signed him. And if that's what they're looking at, I don't see how the Angels see this situation and say, we're definitely going to be able to, to get a guy who wants to win and re-sign him this offseason. And if that's the outlook you have, you kind of have to trade him because there's no way that you can let a guy walk who's going to make $600 million on his next, on his next contract and get nothing for him. And I think a good example of this is you look at the Washington Nationals. They were able to get rid of Juan Soto. I mean, obviously, Juan Soto was still a great player. Still had a year and a half left on his contract as well. But Juan Soto, Trey Turner, Max Scherzer, they have their all-star rep this year. Josiah Gray is from one of those trades. Cabo Ruiz is having a good season. He's their starting catcher now. They need to get something out of Otani because if they don't, this franchise might never be able to recover from that. They don't have, they don't have a lot of money tied up in Otani in the first place. But the value they're going to lose from not having him is far more than what they can replace with what his current salary is. And I just don't think there's any way they can stomach the loss of him with already being an under 500 team as is without getting anything back in return. I feel like they just have to get something. I don't know who it would come from, but they need to get some return out of him because they're not going to make the playoffs this year. Um, and really, if they don't win, I mean, there's maybe a slight chance that if they win six or seven games in the next week, they could really convince themselves to go as all in as possible. But they have made the two earliest deals out of any team, really, in the entire league. They got Mike Moustakas, they got Eduardo Escobar, even with Anthony Rendon healthy and Trout healthy. And the fact of the matter is, they have been the worst team in the league since they started making moves. So I don't really think there's any way to defend them 
being buyers of the deadline again. And it really feels like they could be sellers. And you might be very interesting. They might be the first team to take a guy, trade for him, and then trade him again <laughs> at the deadline to another team who actually needs a veteran hitter. But I, I don't know what where the Angels go from here other than trading Otani. I just really don't feel like if they keep him and just let him walk in the offseason, it'll actually benefit them at all. Obviously, it doesn't. Um, and I really feel like it's just probably the worst move you can make to not uh, do that, unless you really want to go all in on a team that's under 500 and fourth place in the division, which might be an even worse move than just letting him walk. Um, and then, you know, to get off all the Otani talk, the, the A's do still exist. They do have the worst record in baseball, but we already knew that. Um, somehow not the longest w- losing streak in baseball. That belongs to the Angels. And the worst record in the last 10 also belongs to the Angels, not the A's. So not everything's terrible for the A's. They're at least better than the Angels in their last 10 games. They can carry that in the All-Star break with the least amount of pride possible. Yeah, the Angels are going to be a really interesting story uh, down down the stretch here. And it's really it's a shame that Mike Trout, they keep trying to surround him with people, and it's not working. Uh, it would be a very interesting story. All right, let's... Uh, Move off the American League and go to the National League, starting in the East. Uh, you have the Atlanta Braves at first in the East. The Braves actually going with the model that works to surround a star with successful players, which I think is the one thing that, if I'm going to talk any more about the Angels, I would say is the big problem. They make big signings on guys that just haven't panned out. They've really made two big signings other than Otani to surround Trout, and it's been Anthony Rendon and Albert Pujols, who have been just about as productive as I could probably name six players on Atlanta, five or six on the Dodgers that, you know, the Dodgers traded for, I don't know, like a minor league pitcher. I mean, Chris Taylor was traded for a minor league pitcher, and he actually probably, if you went by wins above replacement, has been worth more than Albert Pujols was in his in the later years of his contract on the Angels, and definitely worth more than Anthony Rendon has been because he's only played in 150 or so games for the Angels and hasn't been great in that time, but... Speaking of a team that does that the right way, the Atlanta Braves have done that. They, last season, let Dansby Swanson walk, and people thought, you know, they just won the World Series in 2021 but didn't even get back there, lost to the Phillies in their own division. Are they kind of falling off? What's happening to them? All of a sudden, first to 60 wins, all those concerns are eliminated. Orlando Arcia is having a better season than Dansby Swanson. Somehow, they have eight All-Stars, and Michael Harris had the highest, one of the highest batting averages in the league in June, and he's not even an all-star off of that whole roster, and he was the rookie of the year last year, so all I have to say is the Braves, they have created a juggernaut of a roster. It's really just going to take MLB randomness in the postseason for this team to lose, but we've seen the same thing last year with the Dodgers. The Dodgers won 111 games and went out in the first round to a team that they won, that they only lost, I think, what, five games to all year out of 24, so it wouldn't be that surprising for the Braves to lose because it's never a surprising thing for any MLB team to lose in the playoffs. There is no such thing as an unbeatable team uh, in the MLB postseason just because of the fact that baseball as a game doesn't work fundamentally in a way that in a three-game isolated series, the best team comes out on top. It, I won't say it rarely happens, but it definitely happens at a lower frequency than other sports, A, with longer periods of longer series, and then also even in the NFL with kind of more decisiveness in who the teams are and how it can work out in one game. It's the same lineup every game. There's no such thing as the different positional matchups that you can throw out there. That obviously happens in a longer series in the NBA, but they have seven games to duke it out. That doesn't happen in MLB until the championship series. Um, So it's an interesting thing, but look, I do think the Braves are the best team in baseball. I don't think there's really any debating that right now. I mean, they did just take the series from the Rays, and then, you know, they took Sunday off because they felt like it. Um, (laughs) They're 8-2 in their last 10. They're doing fine. 
It's crazy, though, because the Marlins actually have, I think, the fourth best record in all of baseball, and yet somehow they're eight and a half games back in this division. It's almost as crazy as the AL East being all above 500 by five games or more. The fourth best record in all of the league, I'm going to repeat it again, are eight and a half games back of the Braves in first place. It's just crazy. All these teams in this division are actually playing pretty well right now, though, with the exception of maybe the Nationals. Um, You have the Phillies, who are 48 and 41. They lost the weekend series to the Marlins, but they enter the break 6-4 and four in their last 10. Not doing too badly. Definitely contending in the wild card. Only a half game back of the Giants um, and a game back of the Brewers, who are holding that kind of final wild card spot. Obviously, then you have the Marlins, and then whoever would be second place in a tiebreaker between the Dodgers and the Diamondbacks right now uh, would be the top two in a wild card. Then it would be between the Brewers and the Phillies for that last spot and the Giants for that last spot. And then even the Mets, they went on the road and won a series this week against the Diamondbacks. A pretty good result for them. Six and four in their last 10. I think they actually swept the Diamondbacks, which came in crucial for some other teams that we'll talk about later. But a great series played by the Mets. And then they did lose the series to the Padres uh, on the road before the break. So they're still six games under 500. I don't really see how this team contends for a playoff spot. But the fact of the matter is they're only six and a half or seven games out of it. It's not that bad. Um, And with the talent that they have on their roster, they just need a few guys to perform up to their norms and maybe they can make some noise uh, in the second half of the season. Although not too likely, I'm not putting my faith in it. And then finally, you have the Nationals at the bottom of the division at 36 and 54. Yeah, Miami Marlins probably are the quietest, really, really good team this year in baseball. Um, And frankly, I'm one of those people that really hasn't watched them that much. I couldn't tell you how they're doing it. Uh, pretty crazy they're fourth best team. One run games is the answer. Yeah, they have a negative five run differential, yet they have the fourth best record in all of Major League Baseball. So something tells me that's not going to stick, but uh, we'll, we'll see what happens the rest of the way. Let's move our attention to uh, another uh, surprising team that's leading, and we talked about them last week, continues to lead the NL Central. Well, it's the Reds at the top of the NL Central, but going back to that point about the negative run differential thing, That sometimes will swing back and forth between seasons, and you never know. The Mariners had a better run differential last year than they did the year before. Sorry, other way around. They had a better run differential the year they didn't make the playoffs than the year they did make the playoffs, despite the fact that one year they were negative run differential and they made it, and the other year they were positive run differential and they didn't make it. So it sometimes happens like that. I I don't think the Marlins are in in any way fluky. I think they just really are a good team in terms of one-run game situations. They're actually kind of built for it. They have a lot of guys who just put the ball in play, and that's kind of their MO. That's what they do. Um, If you're talking about one-run games, though, that's not what the Reds do. The Reds were getting murdered all year long at the beginning of the year. They have terrible starting pitching. Their bullpen is amazing. Actually, I won't say amazing. Their bullpen is great. It's probably a top five or ten, something in that area, bullpen in the league. But their starting pitching is just awful. And that is the reason why they have a negative run differential. But since L.A. De La Cruz has come up, their record is great. I think they're 21-7 and seven now, heading into the break with L.A. De La Cruz up 7-3 and three in their last 10. Uh, they've taken the division lead over the Brewers, I guess, at the time they started their run. Maybe even the Pirates were in first. I don't even remember because this division has been very, very wacky with the only constant being that the Cubs are in third and the Cardinals are in last, which is very odd. Uh, but... The Reds, they have overtaken first place. The Brewers are only one back, though. Six and four in their last ten. Two teams built in somewhat similar ways, but a little bit different. The Brewers are definitely more... Both these teams are very bullpen-heavy, I will say that. There are kind of teams that, when their starting lineup can get a few runs of production and get them the lead, the bullpen typically will close down the game. uh, And that's kind of been how they've operated throughout the season. 
The Reds, though, when I'm talking about getting a lead, it needs to be like a six or a seven run lead because their starter is almost always bound to give up four or five runs. Uh, Other than Andrew Abbott, they have just had a really rough year with starting pitching. I don't see how this team, I keep saying this, I I don't see how this team does anything in the playoffs unless they get at least two starters at the deadline, and one of them has to be a high-quality front-end starter, like a Marcus Stroman-type starter. Otherwise, I just don't see any way this team can compete with a team like Atlanta, who has a superior lineup to them, but also has Spencer Strider and Charlie Morton and and Max Fried to throw out at them in a series. They would just not have any chance in that. And even the Marlins would outpitch them by a pretty significant amount. They don't have the run production to do it, but... That's a little too far ahead. Maybe we'll see what happens at the deadline. They may make early moves. Um, They probably should because they should probably slap that guy into their rotation as soon as possible. Um, Andrew Abbott, the only prospect who's really panned out early. And the fact of the matter is they shouldn't be relying on prospects to be up and pitching well. Uh, But Hunter Green's injury has kind of forced them into that. I don't know when he comes back. I don't know if he does come back this season. But outside of Hunter Green and Andrew Abbott, their pitching just hasn't been good all season uh, from the starting perspective. And their lineup has been great, especially with those rookies. But... Other than that, they're kind of a flawed roster, which makes sense because they were supposed to be really bad coming into the season. So it's kind of no surprise that a team has hit a hot streak and they're still a very flawed roster when they were supposed to be horrible coming into the season. Uh, Then you have the Cubs who really, I feel like the Cubs are my most accurate preseason prediction. They're 42 and 47. They're seven games back. They're five and five in their last 10. They're a third place in the division team. Before the season, I said they were the 20th best team in the MLB. I really feel like that's accurate. I just don't think... They haven't really gone above that at any point. They haven't been in the upper echelon since the beginning of the season, maybe when they were, you know, 8th or ninth best record. And they haven't been any worse than, you know, those bottom teams like the Rockies and the Nationals, teams like that. They just kind of have stayed in the middle the whole year. Um, It's very interesting because those teams are typically sellers at the deadline. But with how the Cubs spent in the offseason, I could see them just holding out and going for extensions, especially when the when you see the fact that last year they didn't... Yes, they had their whole fire sale a few years ago where they gave up Rizzo, they gave up Chris Bryant, etc., etc., Javi Baez. But, you know, last year they had the chance to trade Ian Happ and Wilson Contreras, and they didn't trade either of them. Obviously, Ian Happ did resign and had a contract extension, but they even let Contreras walk for nothing. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens. They might trade Stroman... They might decide to just keep him, try to negotiate an extension in the offseason, and he might just resign. Uh, and I think they'll give him enough money that he will. And they might decide that around Stroman and Steele as the top two in the rotation, that's how they're going to build, and they're going to b- bring more top prospects up next year and just hope that it goes a little bit better with a few extra signings. Um, but they're really just an okay team. I- I'm okay with how the Cubs are playing. I think this is kind of the purpose of an accelerated rebuild is to be in this point right now. But it does mean that next year they have to be a playoff team. You can't just sit in mediocrity for the two years if you're going to do an accelerated rebuild, sign guys like Dansby Swanson. You can't sit in that kind of non-playoff but close enough range. Then you have the Pirates. They were supposed to be one of the worst teams in the league heading into the year. 30 games in the season, it looked like we were going to be talking about this team as one of the biggest surprises in the league at the All-Star break. But now we're talking about this team as being exactly as expected. They're eight games under 500. They are 3-7 and seven in their last 10. Had a very rough trip to the West Coast where they did take one game from the Dodgers and one game from the Diamondbacks, but overall went 2-5 and five on that trip. About as expected as those teams were trying to clean up division or clean up wins against bad teams to uh, advance their standings within their own division. But the Pirates, you know, not they're definitely going to be a seller at the deadline, although I don't really think they have much to sell. Uh, you know, you might see maybe a Rich Hill on the move. 
maybe there's a chance. I don't know how what you could really get out of a 43-year-old Rich Hill in a trade, but when you're this young of a roster, you could at least get a minor league player that if you identify someone in another team system that you like, maybe you'll take him. Um, and then the other pieces that they would give up are definitely bullpen pieces. David Bednar, obviously an all-star closer. His name was on really the trading block in rumors last year, so there's no way he wouldn't be on that kind of discussion this year. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't really see who's kind of a trade candidate. Even their relievers are pretty young. They don't really have any old starters other than Rich Hill. I don't see them moving Mitch Keller. So the Pirates are an interesting team. They would be a seller, don't really have much to sell. Maybe Carlos Santana or Andrew McCutcheon could be a good bat for a veteran team. Uh, frankly, I'll talk about a team who McCutcheon's a good fit for in two teams, and I'll actually go into that in a second. Uh, but then you have the Cardinals at the bottom of the division, 38-52, and 5-5 five and five in their last 10. I'm kind of tired of talking about the Cardinals, and I don't have much to say because the fact of the matter is we know. They're the most disappointing team in the league. Well, maybe not the most, but they're close to it. Um, not much to talk about with them, though, because they just don't they don't have anything going. They're probably not sellers of the deadline because all their good players are signed for four, five, six years. Um, and, you know, normally when a team like this that has guys on big contracts starts to fail, it's normally a starting pitching problem. Um, or, sorry, not a starting pitching problem. It's normally just the lineup isn't working well. Some of the Some of the guys are injured, whatever it happens to be. But normally the starting pitchers are the trade candidates, but this team's weakness is its starting pitching. The only hole in the roster is starting pitching. But that hole is so massive on this roster, and it is very important to have good starters, and the Cardinals just don't have it, um, that they're 14 games under 500. But I don't really see what they sell at the deadline because those are kind of the guys that are on smaller contracts for them, and nobody is going to want any of their starters. I, I don't mean that as disrespect to any of them, but I just don't believe there's any team that would give a price that the Cardinals would take for any of their starters because there's no point in, they don't really have a bunch of prospects because they've been, you know, trading their prospects for good players all year, uh, for the last few years. They don't really have good prospects to bring up and kind of let them screw around in the majors for a few weeks. So I don't really know what they do with the deadline. I feel like they kind of just stay put except for maybe a few veterans, but I can't even think of any vets on their roster who would want to be traded anywhere else or really be desired anywhere else. I mean, you could see a few guys being back into the bullpen guys, kind of six man in the rotation guys to eat innings before the playoffs for maybe a team like the Dodgers who's dealt with some injuries there or the Yankees who've dealt with pinching injuries. Maybe they would take a Steven Matz. I don't even know. Uh, but I don't have any, any more to say about the Cardinals. They're just a weird team overall and just really, really disappointing. Yeah, wasted a lot of talent there. All right, let's move over to the National League West. Well, I said there was a team that would be a good fit for Andrew McCutcheon. I was talking about the Dodgers, who for the first time in a very long time are in first place in the National League West, tied with the Diamondbacks, though technically have a winning percentage advantage over the Diamondbacks. Uh, they won four in a row heading into the break, 7-3 and three in their last 10. Uh, I find it very interesting because with 16 games left before the break, I was trying to craft a way that the Dodgers would come up to be first in the division, and I went start by start. And I tried to pick the games, and I actually do have a screenshot of the Dodgers going 11-5 and in their final 16 games. And hopefully the Diamondbacks would go 8-8, eight and eight, kind of cool off, and surrender the three-game lead. And well, the Diamondbacks won 8-8, eight and eight, the Dodgers won 11-5. and five. It went exactly how I planned it to be. I don't know how that actually worked out. I was like, that's ambitious to think that the Diamondbacks are going to slump this much. It also depended on the Mets actually winning a series, which doesn't happen very often. Um, and, well, hasn't happened very often. But all those things did happen. Uh, the Dodgers definitely didn't win the games I thought they would win. 3-3 uh, three and three against the Rockies and the Royals was interesting. I was kind of expecting the Pirates to maybe go 2-2 two and two against the Dodgers and the Rockies and Royals to be swept and the Angels to take a game here and there. But 
The Dodgers over that stretch went 4-0 against the Angels despite going 3-3 against the Rockies and Royals and then 3-1 against the Pirates to close out at that 11-5 record. I think that's how that math worked out. I might have gone one game over or something like that. But fact of the matter is the Dodgers are back in first place, tied with Diamondbacks. And in terms of Andrew McCutcheon, that's the team I'm talking about. If you look at the Dodgers, they have the most imbalanced lefty versus righty roster, I think, of any playoff contender. They don't have a set lineup that they throw out every game. And the fact of the matter is, when the Dodgers face a righty, they put Jason Hayward and David Peralta in the outfield. James Altman's been playing well, so that's three lefty outfielders that they have that really have forced their way in the lineup. And then Mookie Betts ends up playing in the infield as a result of that. So it's just a very odd dynamic that they have, whereas when they're playing lefties, one of Peralta, Altman, or Hayward pretty much has to play in the lineup because somebody's got to play the outfield with Mookie Betts, and especially with Chris Taylor and Trace Thompson on the injured list right now because uh, those two were kind of supposed to balance out that fact, and they just literally have not been available. And as a result, they've created a big roster imbalance where really the guy, against lefties, the Dodgers don't have quality starting outfielders, and against righties, they have probably the best outfield group in baseball. If they had a guy like Andrew McCutcheon who they could say, we're facing a lefty, he's out there in center field and right field and left field, whatever it is, I think it would greatly benefit their team um, to not be throwing out Outman or Peralta or Hayward against those righties, um, despite the fact that all of those guys are having pretty good seasons as well. So, I mean, yes, that is maybe the one weakness that the Dodgers have, and I think McCutcheon would correct that imbalance well. I also think that the Dodgers' approach might be having to do a lot with salary cap stuff and not trying to go over the cap by too much. And the fact of the matter is, if they or sorry, the tax limit, I should say, the luxury tax level, if they're able to get McCutcheon, that's not a signing that's going to push you over the books by that much. They could even still move around other money on the roster and end up below that luxury tax limit, get back under it. Um, so I, I think that would be probably the most the signing that makes the most sense for the Dodgers. Really, maybe the only offensive piece that makes any sense, honestly, that I can think of. Uh, I don't think, you know, I think it would be pretty similar to kind of a Joey Gallo deal last year where, you know, you give up one minor league pitcher and you get a guy back who's going to take some at-bats for you. I think McCutcheon is a lot of a better player than Joey Gallo as well, um, but and, and doesn't isn't as similar to some of the Dodgers players and like, you know, Joey Gallo, who's a little bit similar to Cody Bellinger in that aspect, but I'll get off of that talk and talk about the Giants, who are two and a half games back in third, four and six in their last 10, 49 and 41. I've seen some rumblings that the Giants might be in the Otani sweepstakes in the offseason. Maybe that influences them. Maybe they want to make sure that no matter what, they are under the luxury tax limit so that the Otani era is their era of taking their money into the tax. Um, but for now, they want to stay under it and they're okay with just being a wildcard team. They're a very interesting team to watch at the trade deadline for that reason. I have no idea what they're going to do. I don't know if they're waiting to see if they're in third or if they're in second. I don't know if they're waiting to see what the Dodgers do. They are just kind of, I feel like they may are just waiting for other teams. They might be kind of a reading and react team. They might want to look at what the Brewers are doing, what the Marlins are doing, what the Phillies are doing, kind of evaluating, can we compete with these teams this season? Because if we can't, let's just keep everything together, not risk anything, bring up more prospects next season, uh, have those guys in, in waiting in the wings, and then also make good signings next year, make good trades next year when we're really going to be above those teams as their rentals have expired and have fallen off the team. So, I mean, I don't know what the Giants are going to do, but I really feel like probably waiting and reacting is probably their best course. Um, waiting and reacting is not something the Padres can do at this point. On the other hand, they are 43 and 47 on the season, eight and a half games back of the first place Dodgers and Diamondbacks in fourth in the West, uh, six and four in their last 10. Another interesting team to watch at the deadline because 
if they don't think they can get a deal done with Juan Soto, I also think in the same way that Shohei Otani is with the Angels, they got to move him so they can get something out of him. If they traded all those prospects to literally get a half a season out of him, or one and a half season, well, one full season, actually, if they only get him for until the deadline, but one and a half seasons of him and a half a season of subpar ball from Josh Bell, that might go down as one of the worst trades that any team has ever made because of the fact of how bad they have been this season. Um, so they, if they don't start playing really, really well really soon, right out of the break, there's no way they can be sitting here in two weeks nine, ten games out of the fir- out of first place and six or seven games out of a playoff spot and saying that they're going to be buyers at the deadline. They need to be sellers. They need to get players off their roster. They need to get value out of those guys who still have value because the fact of the matter is they have so much money t- caught up in Machado and Tatis that they're not going to be under the luxury tax unless they really offload the rest of their roster and kind of try to jumpstart a rebuild, although they don't have prospects to rebuild with either. So they're in a tough spot, but they probably shouldn't be buyers of the deadline. That would be very ill-advised. Um, and I don't think it would really help them make the playoffs anyway. Uh, but then you have the Rockies in last place in the division at 34-57, and 57, the worst team in the National League. They're kind of just doing what you think the Rockies would be doing when they never let their stars stay around. Okay, well, as we head to the All-Star break, which is the symbolic, not the actual midpoint of the Major League Baseball season, let's take a look back at how some teams have performed versus preseason expectations. We've talked about some of them. But let's categorize them uh, with definitive, with a definitive list, with two definitive lists, starting with your four biggest surprises of the season. So the way I'm evaluating this is from my last preseason power rankings to the current overall standings, which I know there's one subjective measure to an objective measure, but, you know, there is no, there is no preseason wins-losses, so I don't know what else I'm going to do about it. Number one, of course, well, actually not, of course. There are a few contenders, all of them in the National League. Number one, though, it's the Cincinnati Reds. They were number 28 in my preseason power rankings and have become a top 10 team in the league by record, number eight to be specific. Uh, I've talked about it. It's just the prospects. They've been electric. Ellie De La Cruz, Matt McClain, Spencer Steer. I could keep going on and on. Not going to, though, because I've already talked about them a lot. Uh, Number two, you have the Marlins, who are up 19 spots from 23 to number four, as I mentioned, a huge jump all the way to number four, really snuck up on the number four spot late in the first half as well, um, as a few other teams kind of faltered. They're not too far ahead of the the big group of teams that are tied for third, or sorry, tied for the fifth best overall record, the, Mar- the Diamondbacks, the Rangers, and the Dodgers. They're not very far ahead of those teams, but the fact of the matter is they are, and that's what matters. Um, the Diamondbacks, speaking of them, and the Rangers are the third and the fourth teams. Diamondbacks up 17 spots from 22 to tied for fifth, to tie for fifth, best record. Uh, and then you have the Rangers, who are up 13 from 18 to fifth. And in case anybody was wondering, I actually was high enough on the Orioles that they are not they are not in the top four of biggest jumpers from my preseason power rankings to the current overall standings. They're actually up, thir- they're up 12 spots, so just behind the Rangers, from 15th to third is their jump. Okay, what about your four biggest disappointments of the season? Well, it's pretty obvious. It's the two big payroll teams at the top, the Mets with the highest payroll in the league, who started as my fourth team in my power rankings, who have fallen all the way to 22nd in the overall standings. And then it's the Padres, who are 17 spots down from number three to number 20. I never really honestly believed that the Padres were as good as the media in national media was hyping them up to be, to be quite honest, because I just... I think a lot of people were putting a lot of stock into what happened in the playoffs and not what happened in the regular season, the fact that that team didn't win 90 games. Um, Yes, it matters. Sometimes that playoff run can kind of, you know, 
support you going into the next season. The Braves won a World Series as an 88-win team and then came to the next season and won 100-plus games and won the division. But the fact of the matter is, the Braves also got back Ronald Acuna in that span. Ozzy Albee started playing better, and they traded for Matt Olson. That's a big difference in the Padres heading into the year with the same roster, if not maybe even a little bit of a downgraded roster, and then also just dealing with some of the bad luck with some injuries they've had. Manny Machado having probably his worst season in San Diego um, and just overall not able to deal with it. Then you have the Cardinals who are down 14 spots from 11 to 25. Uh, I talked so much about them. I'm kind of tired of it, so I'm not going to talk about them anymore. And then I'm going to say the fourth spot and then the honorable mentions altogether because these teams don't really deserve to be here. I will say that I did a great job of, I, I don't think that other than the Mets and the Padres, I didn't really overestimate the Mets, Padres, and the Cardinals I overestimated. I wasn't really wrong about the kind of middle of the league. So there are really no teams that I had in the middle that are worst team in the league caliber. Like all the worst teams in the league are teams that I had as the worst teams in the league with the exception of the Reds. Um, So surprisingly, the fourth spot with the fourth biggest jump down the standings is the Astros because I had them as the preseason number one team and they have the 10th best record, Um, which really that's not that disappointing. They're still a playoff team. So uh, I won't talk that much about that. And then there's the Mariners, the Guardians, and the Yankees, who are all playoff contenders. The Mariners, third in their division, a few games back at the wild card spot. The Yankees, one game back at the wild card spot. And the Guardians, who are in first place in their division, but at 500, who are all eight spots down from spots in the middle of the standings to kind of the mid 20s. I think the Mariners and the Guardians were eighth and ninth back to back in my standings, and are now 17th and 16th. So you know they were supposed to be a higher kind of mid, kind a little bit of an above average team. They've kind of just fallen off to an average team. I mean, the Yankees were supposed to be a great team that, based on the pitching injuries at the time, I didn't know about Rodon, actually, because that's how early these power rankings were. They have gone from a great team to just an above-average team. So not really that bad on the disappointment ends, but a very interesting first half in MLB. Yeah, very interesting that the the three biggest risers and the three biggest fallers are all in the National League. So National League a bit more scrambled than the American League, except for... And in the same divisions, by the way, as well, because the Diamondbacks basically switched with the Padres, the Marlins switched with the Mets, and the Cardinals switched with the Reds. That's basically exactly what happened. The Reds were supposed to be in last, the Cardinals in first, it flipped. The Diamondbacks were supposed to be tied for first with the Dodgers, and the, or sorry, were supposed to be uh, in probably last or fourth at least, probably fourth above the Rockies, and instead they were tied in first with the Dodgers, and then kind of the same thing where the Marlins were supposed to be fighting with the Braves probably a little bit back, and that's exactly or the Mets were supposed to, and that's what the Marlins are doing. So yeah, they really and, just flip-flopped. And your four spot flip-flopped in the American League West. So. Yeah, basically just one team that was supposed to be average and kind of a contender that's now in first place, and then the other team is supposed to be first place, and they were just kind of average. So. All right, pretty yeah. interesting. We'll see how it turns out the rest of the season. Um, that wraps this edition of the 4th and 24 podcast. Please be sure to check out our next podcast, which will be on Monday, July 17th where we will recap Patrick's weekend predictions and have our weekly look at Major League Baseball, which will include All-Star Week activities, as that's going to be most of the action prior to the podcast. The season starts back up on next Friday. So in the meantime, check out Patrick's additional content, including his picks for next weekend's games slash maybe potential matches, Wimbledon's final week. We'll see. Uh, that will be posted, as always, on Thursday. And his Major League Baseball power rankings that are updated every Wednesday. All that content on our website, 4thand24.com. That's the number four, T-H-A-N-D, the number 24.com. Thank you for listening.